This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Come on for picture. First positions, everyone. Yo, go. And action. to the Filmmakers Podcast live at the Independent Film Festival! This is, in fact, our first Make Your Film event since COVID, so we are delighted to be back. Thank you all for coming. It's our absolute pleasure to have you all here. Absolutely. This is Dom Lemoire. He is not only a brilliant host of the Filmmakers Podcast, he's also a director in his own right. He's made three feature films before the age of 30, including... Uh, the 16-time award-winning Winter Ridge. He's also produced uh, the indie films I Love My Mum, soundtrack to 16, and The Unreason, which is coming out very soon. It's Dom Lenoir, everyone! I'm not sure I'm going to do as well for Giles, but Giles did write and direct his debut uh, studio film, Millennium Pictures, The Dare. He's also directed Wolves of War, The Stranger in Our Bed. He's also produced... Uh, the paragraph here. Uh, a Serial Killer's Guide to Life, Followers, Repeat, and recently, Three Day Millionaire, which reached number five on Netflix, which is very exciting. Thank you, thank you. Um, we have an amazing, not only audience, but an amazing panel here today. So, we'd like to bring them up. Um, first of all, we're going to bring up the amazing Cos Greenop, who has directed the films Dark Beacon, um, Last Heist, Sweet Street, Velvet, and House Red, and he's just wrapped on his latest feature film, Shot in Iceland. It all comes with the cold water. Cos Green up, give it up! <laughs> Next guest to announce is the fantastic Debs Patterson, who has worked as a director on such amazing shows as the Paramount Plus Halo TV series, the Disney show Willow. Uh, she has also done the Skywalker Legacy documentary and Africa United feature film. Please welcome her to the stage. And also we're bringing up the amazing Francis Anand. He wrote and directed uh, the political thriller Escape from Pretoria, which starred Daniel Radcliffe and Ian Hart. Uh, it was released all around the world to great success. Um, other credits include Warzak, uh, Holby City, The Longest Drive, Unsaid Stories, and The Upcoming, which he is in development for right now, The Count of Monte Cristo. Give it up for Francis Anand. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. There you go. Hello, how are we doing? Are we all right? Very good. Yeah? Yeah, yeah feeling good. It's cozy up here, isn't it? Absolutely. 
a bit of a New York feel with the brick as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So look, I suppose we want to talk about, well, actually, let's ask the audience first of all, uh, how many people in the room are filmmakers? So we get a hand. Put your hands up. Give a scream. Great, okay. Writers. Any writers in the room? That's nearly half. Yeah, great. Uh, directors. How many directors have we got? Again, just under half. Producers. Okay, under half, even more so. Crew. There we go. <laughs> we got three. So if you need a crew, anyone? <laughs> he's, your, he's your guy. <laughs> uh, how many people in this room have made a short film and got it released and out there? Uh, TV. Directed any TV or been involved in TV? Okay, so a couple. All right. Uh, and how many people in the room have made a feature film? Awesome. Hey, awesome. <laughs> Mark's just Quite done his feature film and looked which, very, very excited about it. it. <laughs> very excited by that. We want to just sort of start off with a, a question which all, all three of you can sort of discuss, which is basically what you know, state of the industry at the moment. There does seem to be like a major cast shortage, um, maybe with streamers, maybe with just what's going on. And it's also very difficult to raise finance for indie films. So what's your current experience with those two things at the moment? Have you had to deal with it? Should we start with you, Debs? Uh, can do. Hi, is this, yeah, good? Yeah, very good. Um, Hi. It's been an interesting time the last few years. It's been like a, obviously, pandemic and explosion of streaming and explosion of TV over features, which means, as you say, casts are tied up for a lot longer, harder to get availability. But I don't know. I don't know that it's not about to swing back. There's strikes incoming uh, for the WGA and... Um, uh, directors and producers possible. I mean, directors apparently only ever struck once for three hours. Uh, <laughs> That's long enough for a cup of tea. <laughs> and television's a writer's medium anyway, so the writers are leading the charge for the first time on this one. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what that does in tech, as well as a massive consolidation. And uh, it feels like there's going to be a squeeze on TV incoming, which might be absolutely brilliant for independent film. And also people are coming out again you know, cinema is a kind of collective art form. Mm. We've been really fractured for the last 10 years. And so I wonder if those two things coalesce as well. It feels like there's maybe a bit more cohesion and people might be going out there. So, Yeah. I think, I think there's a, like a, a bit of an independent cinema sort of rejuvenation as well. I mean, we've done a few cinema tours recently and the, the small cinemas seem to be really succeeding uh, where there's community sort of, um, yeah, community sort of gatherings and... Yeah, people come every week. It's, it's interesting. It's kind of moving away from the chain. So maybe there is something coming. Mm, it's interesting what you say there, Debs, uh, about the TV industry and how it has been so busy and so popular, you know, for which makes it very hard for independent filmmakers because crew have gone. Uh, Netflix is signing a lot of crew up for years in advance. Uh, that means cast are going as well. And agents don't want cast to come and do indie films where they're getting paid very little and it might never see the light of day. So if it does swing back around, it will be a, a real breath of fresh air for a lot of independent filmmakers right now. Cos, how are you feeling about that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, in terms of indie film and in terms of cast, like we have not seen like a, an issue with that I think just because a lot of the big cast are tied up but they're not people that we could approach anyway yeah. because of the budgets that we have um, I mean certainly shooting in Iceland you know is a very small country anyway for the, the industry every single crew member was literally tied up in the new True Detective that they were shooting out there. So we thought we were going to get a load of tax breaks because of their crew, and then we had no crew, so we couldn't anyway. So it was, that was kind of frustrating. Right. Um, so we had to fly everyone out. So in terms of that, it's, uh, yeah, in terms of the cast, it, we as, as independent film have not found an issue finding 
great actors for our for our stuff but obviously if we know that we go to a lot of distributors and they have a tick list of actors that they want and it's like yeah they're available in 2030 and it's like okay great yeah how long did you shoot out of interest uh we were in iceland for a month but the actual shoot we shot the entire movie in 12 days days. wow that's rough hence why i look homeless (laughs) (laughs) because he's very handsome um (laughs) under all this (laughs) Uh, and what about yourself, Francis? What's happening for your world? Because obviously your first film, you know, big stars in it. And obviously I imagine The Mon- Count of Monte Cristo as well. So how are you finding that process right now? Well, The Count of Monte Cristo's already, like, not gone, but that's already, you know, thrown into the ether and other projects have come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big thing that's, that's happening. Projects getting stalled because, um, you know, maybe trying to go for slightly bigger cast. Um, you have the problem of their availability because of high-end television. Great uh, filmmaker-turned-television people who are kind of, you know, attracting top cast. Um, so whereas seven, eight years ago, you might get Gary Oldman or this person, they're doing, you know, an Apple TV series for nine months. Um, some of these actors will get upwards of one, 1. 1.2, 1.5 million per episode. Um, and... Yeah. People like us who are making films are on the 10, 15 level or lower or higher cannot compete with such a thing. So then the quality of the script, the character, um, and what that has to offer the actor vis-a-vis their slate, um, the location, and other things could be interesting to the actor. Mm-hmm. But then if that actor is quite big and you know, they're chasing certain directors and filmmakers, then you have to be careful because oh, I don't want to do that. I want to do work with that. But, and then you just find that's a big problem. Um, so it, it's tricky. It's tricky. I think it's not really much different to 15 years ago. All the stuff we were doing, trying to get you know, high-level cast sales agents telling us this, this, and this gets you this pre-sales. That what's trickier is a lot of those actors are working uh, in higher-end television, producing, acting in it, sometimes writing it. And so their time is, is less. Um, and that leaves, you know, the kind of purer film, indie film people uh, struggling a bit to get them. If you don't get them, then it's, it's hard to get the pre-sales. If you don't get the pre-sales, the whole thing is crumbling. But I think your idea of going, you know what, stuff you suckers. I've got 500, <laughs> I've got 750, I've got a mil. Da, da, da. Okay, I want a 25-day shoot, but if I can grab it in 12 or 15 and you know what you're doing, that could be a way around it. But it's, it's difficult in terms of cast. It's, it's, it's hard because of that lack of availability. I think also it's sometimes franchises as well, like the Hollywood franchises. I mean, you know, the Fast and Furious. All of these franchises have so many iterations and they're constantly churning out the next one. And they're constantly sort of doing post on one and then they're moving into the next one. A lot of the time, availabilities are also held up in that, which can be a bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it can be very difficult. I, I don't know necessarily the way around it. Like, so if, if someone's trying to start their first film, you know, I read this uh, report the other day. Uh, they only spoke to 104 indie filmmakers. But That's at, all of us. Like, yeah. <laughs> pretty much Every everyone here. <laughs> and it said that basically anyone who made the film for under 50K the turn of profit was about 80%. Oh, that's right. Anyone who yeah, made anything yeah. from 50K up to almost 900K very rarely did. So it's down to 2%. And then above that, it's like to turn profit again. And obviously that is an area where if someone wants to make an indie film and you want to have talent in it and you want to make it with good crew and good people, it's the world we're playing in. And that was frightening. It was a little bit kind of like, wow, how are we going to tackle that? Yeah. I was going to say, the one thing on the non-doom and gloom side mm-hmm. um, is 
one of the things that routinely filmmakers and uh, cast really struggle with in TV, and it is, I don't know why it's consistent, but it is consistent, is they don't have all of the scripts before you shoot. So, like, if you're a cast member and you care about, obviously, you care about what you're making, the difference between going into a shoot in collaboration with the filmmakers, uh, knowing what the script is, knowing what you want to bring, obviously, you're always shooting out of order, but often people are kind of, you know, they, they'll read the first two scripts of a 10-parter, but the, the rest of the eight, like, where is your character going in any meaningful way, in any nuanced way, often, like, horrifyingly often isn't clear until literally the point where you start to shoot, and sometimes as you're already in the middle of a block. So there's a huge advantage of approaching cost with a finished script, with a compelling vision, you know, and, and in a kind of collaborative mindset. That's massively appealing. So, you know, pros and cons. I suppose, I suppose the difficult bit is whether the script actually gets to the cast. Yes. Because, I mean, that, that's really the... You don't know at the end of the day. I mean, you, you build relationships with, you know, casting agents, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't know whether they will read the script. And it could be the absolute perfect script. It could be someone that's never done a lead before in that kind of dramatic role or, or whatever. You could have an amazing package. But the problem is the casting, um, you know, the agents of the cast are under tremendous pressure because there's so much money being thrown around and there's so many big projects. And you know, as we said earlier, like, people are missing out if they commit to something small and then they miss the next, you know, the next... And the agents are not making money off your small film, so it might not be the best route. Yeah, full no, stop, right? Yeah, full stop. So all we can do is just make, try, write the best script we can, really, is really fight for what we believe in mm. and go, I'm going to do it. I don't care what happens. I'm going to beat the odds and I'm going to make it and that's why you're all here anyway in the first place because you give a shit about going out there and making the best film you can so if you weren't you wouldn't be here I mean that that was I mean it's not it's not an indie filmmaker but uh, Taika Waikiki um, with Jojo Rabbit did exactly that he just said there's no way I can pitch this film. I've tried pitching this film to a few friends. They just said no. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to make a really good script, and if you like it, then make my movie. So yeah, just get up to his level and then make a really good script. <laughs> the rest is history. Once more, the, on a very practical level, um, producers, directors, you know, even writers, um, 90% of, of whom I'm, I'm, ready, I, I'm sure I've already actually appro- I, I'm approached, cast, um, you'll send your script to a to an agent. Um, they'll be immediately, you know, on your ass. You know, what's the flipping shooting schedule and how many days and what's the budget? And they don't really care about what the schedule and budget is. They're testing you. They're trying to see have you hired a line producer and costed this and it's you know whatever it is. They're saying have you done a twenty seven day schedule and you know that you need my actor to play the lead for fifteen days. And so if you want to punch above your weight, I would possibly recommend uh, whether you do it yourself on a bit of a whim or whether you spend 500 quid or a bit of money to hire a line producer to have those um, bits of information ready because that first hurdle, mm. oh, oh, 27 days, oh, okay, and you need my guy for 15 days and the budget's 2.5, mm, send the script. It gets you through that first hurdle because they know that there's, a, there's an element of professionalism there. You're not just sending it on a whim. That's, that's one thing I recommend. And then the second thing is um, whether you're on your own do try and have a very short pricey, again, most people know this, of whoever's in your team and what they've done, a couple of little sprinkles of credits. It's amazing how just a simple, tight email with some of that um, is just very helpful. Just in 15 seconds when they're going through emails, they go, it checks out, it looks good, send it. 
and then they will probably just put it in the pile in the Senate. So that's one little thing. If you're going for those top, top level actors, they, the, 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 the agents will test you with those sorts of questions. Just, it's useful to be ready with those things. Literally reminds me of, I was speaking to an agent of an actress uh, on one of my first movies, and I remember them saying, will the money go into an escrow? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I had no fucking clue what an escrow. I was like Googling, is it some kind of weird crow? Like, what? The, is that over a rider? Like, I had no idea. So it's like, be prepared for those kind of questions that they ask because, yeah, like they will ask you these questions to test that you do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, than, yeah. and one thing I just add is, it, it, kind of what Francis is saying as well, is whatever you can do to show that you're not just a piece of paper, which basically a script is just a piece of paper. You want to come in with a business plan. You want to do everything that everyone else isn't doing. Uh, I mean, like I went out to America and did a recce, uh, you know, for a script. I can come back and I can say, okay, this is where it's shooting. You know, I've got pictures of it. I can say this is where it's going to be. Get the line budget done. That's a massive one, definitely. Even get the schedule done. Um, and then you're just not walking into the room like you're basically just someone with a dream and an idea. Mm, it's great advice, all of you. It really does make a difference when you come fully prepared. And that's really hard. That's the hard bit is learning that stuff. But the sooner you can learn it, the better you'll be at it. You know, ask around this afternoon. Go speak to people afterwards. Could anyone help me? I can send you this if you can send me that. And you can all grow. That's, that's how it works. Um, do, do you guys so all use uh, pitch decks and do you sort of try and do personalized letter to cast as well like how do you sort of approach those yeah i yeah 100% always get pitch decks um i don't do letters but i will like kind of sneak or well, cheekily almost like just put like a list of cast in their head right there and be like this could be you yes. like type thing so i'll always say yeah like ideal cast it's like yeah you're perfect you know you're in the deck we spent 10 pounds on printing for your face so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in gloss yeah, yeah. How about you, Anand? You certainly, when you were doing Escape from Pretoria, did you think about your vision deck? Was that part of your plan when you were pitching to someone like Daniel Radcliffe? Um, the pitch decks are interesting. I mean, again, they can be useful in terms of the, ah, oh, the sucker did a you know, pitch deck. Mm. They won't read it, but the fact that you've done it, yes. it's, it's, more the, it's more the idea. Yes. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You know. act, that, that's, I mean, it's, it sounds corny, but. You know, it's just all these. Maybe there's ten bricks you've got to, you've got to, and every little small little thing you've got, your thing you've got, your this, you've got that, and let's go. Okay, okay, okay. Because they don't know you. They've never heard of you before. They know so and so studios. They know this big producer. They don't know you. Uh, and so all these little things just are just um, helpful markers. Um, with, with Dan, one of the producers knew um, Dan's agent, so that helps a lot. That, and he told a few jokes about. Rival, fo- rival football teams and it was, so that, that was that was that. wizard was jokes etc yeah 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 she read it and loved it sent it to Dan and then the rest was history um, in terms of letters I used to do letters as a director um, I think I wouldn't discourage them but I didn't find them incredibly helpful all the time they weren't the thing that made or broke the thing um, I just recently did a short video a one minute video to a, to a big actor he was in Australia and just said, hi, blah, 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 blah. And everyone, the producer said, that's a great idea. Uh, and so that something like that could work. Literally, you know, selfie, hi, I'm here. Da, 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 da. This is the character. This is you. I'd love you for it. Um, hopefully, jump on a Zoom at some point, you know, if it resonates with you. Bye. Something like this. Yeah, it's no, just great. displaying competence, isn't it? Uh, even if you don't read the pitch deck, but it looks well produced, not like a sort of amateur thing that you made in, you know, Microsoft Paint or yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in pitch decks. Like, okay. I, I, I really enjoy doing them. Like, I enjoy the process of can I communicate this vision in images mm-hmm. and references. And because a big part of, you know, people work with a lot of different directors and a big part of your job is not to do... And that's the, man, it's the hardest thing about transitioning from indie stuff into, like, 
biggest stuff is that your job in indie stuff is to do everything and to compensate yeah. for every gap that you kind of got to fill. And then as you, you know, with a with an actor, you don't need to compensate for them. Somebody that knows their, knows their stuff, they want to know that you're going to be able to communicate what you what you want and let them be best place to deliver what they're really, really good at. So I, I actually, only during the last five years or so, but I've come to like really enjoy the pitch deck process, partly because it clarifies my feelings about you know, each phase of the thing that we're talking about. Um, and also because it, it, I mean, like you're saying, it kind of demonstrates the sort of communicator that you'll be the way that you can kind of offer a sort of vision to the different collaborators because everybody works in different ways as well. So, yeah, I find it, I, I really enjoy it for, for that. Yeah, I agree. I love it. I think it's, for me, it's exactly the same thing. I sort of clarify what my film or TV series is going to be if I spend time working on it, the colour palette, getting images mm. from other places. And look, of course, you're taking images from films that are very successful and have made which lots is, of money. Which is subliminal advertising. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this could be like this Oscar it's, winner. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> We're going to have just as much. Of course it is. But, yeah, and, but that's your idea for it. And that's okay. And I love it too because you really then start to piece together what your film's going to be, which helps you then to talk to an actor about it or a producer at first or, a, you know, whoever it's going to be, a director if you've written it. Uh, and there's it. aggregate sites now that massively mm. facilitate the project. It used to be extremely time-consuming, but there's like Shot Deck Shot and Deck's Filmio. Great. And I mean, like, it's game-changing. as well. Yeah, an AI these days. AI, yeah. You can even get actors to, you know, if there's a specific actor you want, you put them in AI and they can be wearing the costume from your film. No, that's mental. Yeah, so you see, so you've got all those options for you now <laughs> for your picture. And that don't have to be a name, you know, it helps because obviously AI. Put that in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can. No, you can actually. Yeah, I, I don't know how I would feel if I was an actor and, and someone had like put me to be Robocop or something and then they sent me the pitch deck of it. I'm not I'd sure. like it. I think, I don't know, any actors in the room would... Yeah, Robocop. <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd love it if very, someone very sent, sent you a pitch deck and there was you in it as a character that they were pitching. I pitch- love that. I right. really love it. I wouldn't care if it was AI. Yeah, there you go. So, I don't know, I think it depends. Oh, maybe if it was Russell Crowe, maybe not. But, you know, I think it just depends. But Can't rustle it up with that. Brilliant. Wow. <laughs> so look, maybe let's, we'll come back to that because it's a really interesting topic. Maybe you've got some questions about that we'll come back to in a bit. But let's, let's wind it back a little bit just to work out our first beginnings into how we got a film made or a TV show made because I think that is always the most interesting part, the trickiest part, the hardest bit. Let's start with you, Cos. How did your first film happen? How did you get it made? So I... Went to film school in uh, up north, and it was basically the most uninspiring three years of my life. It was like getting a degree in finger painting, like <laughs> such a waste of time. Uh, and some people are good at finger painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I started off being a camera assistant and worked up to being an editor and camera operator. I did music videos, documentaries. And that was great because I was on set. I mean, I did still to this day, I still do a lot of corporate work. And it's great because you're behind a camera and you're not at a desk. But it was it was never my story. Like, I always wanted to tell, even doing music videos, you know, you can be creative, but it's always the artist's interpretation of their song and their music. And it was never my story. Um, and it was only really when I had, um, I, I do a lot of rock climbing and had a rock climbing accident in 2012. And I had three months in bed in, in traction. And I was like, right. If I don't write a feature-length script now, I never will, and I need to get that out of my head. Yeah. I was like, let's turn this negative into a positive. So I literally, 
I was a massive fan of like B movie, horror movies, UK, Korean, Japanese horror. And I was like, okay, I want to make a horror film. And I'd seen it was back in 2012 when everything was getting released to DVDs. Like you watch some dreadful horror movies like with booms and shot and they were getting distributed. So I was like, right, well, if I write something that has all these kind of tick lists in that all these horror films had, I thought, well, chances are I might be able to get this made. So I spent three months writing this script. Again, I had no training in, in script writing whatsoever, but I kind of thought that I'd seen enough movies to understand how you know, the pacing and tone and things worked. So I wrote this script and thought, actually, I really want to go make this film. But coming from Leeds, I didn't know anyone in the film industry. I knew a lot of people who worked in the corporate world, but didn't know anybody. Um, but whilst I've been working on these kind of music videos and corporate videos, I'd saved up some money to be an adult and put a deposit on a house. And I kind of just thought, well, you know, what? if you're a tradesman, if you're a plumber, electrician, you invest in the tools you need for the job. So I thought if I want to be a filmmaker, I'm going to invest in myself. And because I knew that these films were getting distributed, I thought, well, rather than making, you know, a 20 grand short film, if I make a 20 grand feature, then it, I might get some money back. You know, short films will never get money back. Um, yes, they're great calling cards, but I thought, well, if I'm putting my own money in, you know, even if I get, you know, a couple of grand back, at least it's more money back to me. So kind of went away and we shot this movie in the Highlands of Scotland with two actors. And it was, it went back to, I always say the best film school is reading this book by Robert Rodriguez called Rebel Without a Crew. Because it's the most inspiring book ever. And it's just like, just go fucking do it with what you've got. He had a turtle and a guitar case, so he went and shot El Mariachi. I had my dad's camper van, and I went, right, I'm going to have two actors in a camper van. It's one little location. Went up to the Highlands of Scotland. I shot it on a Lumix GH2 camera, hacked the firmware to up the bitrate, bought a load of World War II lenses on eBay. I shot it, edited it, learned how to do the DCP, color grade. I was the caterer, did everything with these two actors and a sound guy. And it was only when my lead actress saw the film, said, oh, you should take it to Cannes Film Festival. And I was like, I don't know what. What's Cannes Film Festival? What's, like you see the red carpets and stuff. And you're like, no, it's a market where you can go and sell your film. And being an avid collector of DVDs, I looked at all these really crappy B movie horrors. Looked at the back, saw the distributors, and set up meetings with all these distributors. So I think I had about 120 quid left to my name. So bought some Ryanair flights from Leeds to Nice, and set up about 40 meetings in three days. I slept on the beach for two nights in a hotel lobby the other night, and uh, and literally just went and and handed. I felt like a you know used car sale. You're handing out a DIY DVD, and uh, just went to all these distributors, handed the DVD out, and uh, yeah, a month later, E1 bought the rights to that movie and got distributed all over the world, and that was kind of my career and then I was like okay well maybe there's something to this it's not just my mum liking my movie oh he's a filmmaker uh, so I was like I need to be in London so yeah literally kind of I used to go down to London all the time for meetings from Leeds on the Megabus and I just thought right it's a six hour Megabus and I'm like having 10 minute meetings and then going six hours back on the Megabus like this is ridiculous so I had a mate at film school that lives in in Ealing and I was like you you're a really talented writer do you want to do you want to write with me on this next film? And it was basically an excuse to live at his house in London so I could take him to the meeting. So, did, he, did he know that? Uh, no, he does now. He doesn't. So it was, like, it was supposed to be like six months living there, and I think I ended up living there for about five years at his house. Uh, wow. And, uh, and that, that was it. But, yeah, just being around London. You're still friends? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> we are, we are, yeah. Cos, that's amazing. Give it up for Cos. That's brilliant. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. I love Sorry, that. I've got a question. So, this idea of looking at the back of the DVDs and looking—that's an amazing idea. So, from just to break that down, you look and you see Europa Films. What do you do next in terms of? 
converting uh, that to a meeting. Uh, go on LinkedIn, go on their website, see who their head of acquisitions is and just say, hi, I'm Cos from Leeds, I've made a movie, are you in Cannes? And just say, look, I've got... Because the thing is, with distributors and sales agents, they will take those meetings if you've got something because it costs them nothing. So, you know, I could have made the next Pulp Fiction. My first one definitely isn't the next Pulp Fiction. But, you know, they're, they're willing to take a chance because it's not going to cost them anything to watch a screener of a DVD. If I was there going, oh, I've got a script and I need some money... They tell me to do one, but the fact that I had a finished product, they're like, "Well, you know, what does it cost us? You know, ninety minutes to watch a, a movie." So they, they, I, I actually found it. I was like, you know, I got this call from E1. I was like, "Filmmaking's fucking easy." Like, <laughs> saw, saw my first film in Hollywood. Yeah, so this is so. The next ten years, not so easy. But, but you know, at that point, I was like, you know, this is great. And it was at a time in 2013 when you know they were literally buying everything because it was like the the dying days of. of you know, DVD and supermarket films and things like that. So, you know, they were they were willing to take the meetings. That's that's amazing. Yeah, that, yeah. I'm sure yeah, most of you done that. But that's a great. Idea. And if if anyone's um, familiar with Sinando, uh, it's a kind of database. Yeah, LinkedIn, Facebook, amazing mashup of everything, but just for film and all the. Um, distributors and sales agents will um, often ninety percent of them will say they're at Cannes, uh, and if you can pay band together and pay some money for Sinando. Um, and get a little thing, um, then you know they've got mobile phone numbers on there and and their personal emails for all the three thousand distributors, and you can do what he's done on a kind of acid level eleven version. But that, but that, um, and, and yeah, if you do a hundred emails, you will almost certainly get fifteen meetings. And of those fifteen meetings, what do you need? One, two. You don't. The thing is, you often, you know, in Cannes as well, you get you get meetings that you would never get in London, even yeah. though you're like you live five minutes from their house, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, or their office, or, or whatever. Like, it is a great opportunity where you can target people, and they just might be open to something they're not open to all the time. Yeah, Sinando spelled C I N. A-N-D-O. A-N-D-O. Um, the email's short. Yes. And punchy. I'm here. Da, da, da. I've got yeah. this. I'm here during these dates. I'd love to meet. If they don't get back to you, don't worry about it. They're busy people. You can then pop into their office potentially and try and speak yeah. to the receptionist if they've got one at Cannes as well and say... Hey, I'm here. There's another site as well called Hunter.io. Uh, again, you're supposed to pay for that. But actually, if you go on the site, what they do is they blur out the emails that they say pay for this, but you can work it out. Yeah. It's kind, kind of quite easy to do. Yeah, so if you, if you just change the first name and, yes. and then like, you know, find the CEO's first name and then like add them onto the, the email. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's, it's a good point about not overselling the email. I mean, if you're incredibly famous, if you're, you know, Steven Spielberg or, or whatever, and you're sending an email, it's going to be a couple of words. It's going to be like pretty casual it's going to be like a little bit of information enough to sort of just you know someone that's just arranging another meeting Mm -hmm. if you send a massive email it's got like hundreds of attachments uh, you're really like overselling yourself they're just going to think oh fucking hell this is going to be this is going to be hard work um, and I've already been put off by this this and this and often attachments clog up their inbox or it goes into spam because you've put an attachment straight away so quite tip here is to send the email and then go oh and by the way here's the attachment afterwards Again, you can probably get away with it, but you don't necessarily wait for them to ask sometimes, especially first time. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing I was discussing the other day is whether to send a pitch deck in the initial email or whether to ask to send the pitch deck. And I'm kind of of the opinion, ask to send it, because otherwise you never know if they've actually mm-hmm. received it. Um, and then you've got something for them to be, oh, I haven't and seen you that can, yet. And you're right, you can follow up with it. I'm the opposite, I put it in, but I think okay. I'm going to take your advice from now. I would not do that. Um, De- Debs, what about yourself then? Let's talk about your sort of start your way in as well. 
Uh, oddly, also involves three months in traction, which is really random. Not to be recommended. In Leeds as well. <laughs> no, Cambridge. Cambridge, right? Close, close. So wanted uh, knew I wanted to make films. Didn't really know anyone or how to do it. Uh, uh, randomly presented. Match of the day in Singapore for Did a minute you? and a half. You obviously. were presenter, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Um, uh, uh, but knew I wanted to do film, so I came back to London in the hope of trying to get involved. So I got a job at the Directors Guild of Great Britain. How did you get that though? Oh, like in a maybe it was where I was shooting people. Okay. There used to be like a like a yeah back in and just displaying my age now. It's still uh, there. It's the, still is that it? One. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it, it was like basically it was the festivals or shooting people trying to figure out how to get a community. I hadn't gone to film school. Um, was intimidated by the cost of it and didn't really know how to get going with that. Kind of wanted to go f- to film school forever. Never quite managed. And the um, and the but. Of, Thinking I needed a community of people. How can I learn? Who can I learn from? That kind of thing. So, like, did some um, to figure out what directors did. Uh, signed up as a first AD on a couple of national film school shorts, and I apologise to them. Um, and got some public funding to produce. Like, people didn't really see me as a director, and that was partly because the time that it was like you, directors normally looked a certain way, and it wasn't like me. And then had an awful car accident. Three months of traction. Um, I wouldn't recommend it, but don't. I wouldn't give it back. I mean, it's worth it these two. Yeah, yeah no, right. <laughs> um, and then, start, as I was recovering from that, uh, having thought that would be a stop to any kind of, you know, I was grateful to be walking and talking and having a functional face, frankly, at that point. Um, uh, but realised about three years after that, I was healthy again and probably had some friends who would come and do something with me. So remembered this story that I'd heard in Rwanda about a school shooting in Rwanda, had some friends that were filming a charity video in uh, Uganda and said, oh, if you can do these dates, we'll come over the border after and help you film this. Like a friend of a friend had just been in a film in Rwanda, called him, met some filmmakers in Rwanda, like over Skype, you know, wrote the script with a Rwandan filmmaker that we'd never, I'd never met. Um, but it was this amazing, quite like weirdly powerful true story about these kids that refused to... to um, acquiesced to rebels telling them to separate in the aftermath of genocide. Like, really genuinely inspiring story. So we, so we shot it on no money. Everyone paid for their own flights. I realised as we were getting on the, on the plane, having never done this before, this is going to cost £2,600 of real money that I don't have. Sent an email uh, to everyone I knew going, uh, if anyone would like to give us some money, this is what we're making, this is why. Got to Rwanda, checked email again when you could find, like, a Wi-Fi to check. And, they, and we had been given literally £2,600 by mates. Wow. Which was amazing. Yeah. So then it was like a complete kind of ragtag, but an amazing story shot in the school where it happened, had survivors advising us. It was made with Kleenex and spit, basically. <laughs> but the, um, it still plays every year on, on Rwanda national t- TV. Like, it's, it's a genuinely very inspiring story. And that kind of, you know, we scrabbled together money to do festivals we got like this charity for some reason gave us some money to do post in their thing it was like a real just make it up as you go along thing but the story was incredible and the performances from the kids were incredible and it was um and it and it was in rwandan um can you rwandan but the but played festivals all over the place and then got seen by some producers who said oh you know you're interesting let's do some more so i made two more shots of them then by total chance that school shooting short plus a kind of magical realist 
short we'd done for another competition, like festival competition, was the perfect calling card for this, like for Africa United, which was like a, a road movie. It was kind of Cool Runnings meets Stand By Me meets Slumdog Millionaire, also set in East Africa. And I've got this skin, but my mum was born up and brought up in Rwanda, and you know I've got a lot of friends and family genuinely in Rwanda so there was a kind of connection uh, anyway so yeah so out of nowhere had gone from scrabbling together short films to Pathé and BBC films going yeah we'll make this next and by total chance the short films were the calling card for that script so they were like yeah we think you can do it and the um and so that all happened very very my first film happened very very fast and I didn't really know anything about the industry so my major kind of industry learning happened after that in the seven years where I couldn't get arrested to do anything. Um, and then started doing TV uh, via Star Wars doc. And it's I, been suppose busy. I, I suppose the distribution of that was, was the big break, wasn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big film for Africa United. Yeah, no, it was, it was weird. It just kind of captured... What I remember about that one... Uh, that I then failed to create for like the projects I was trying to get off, off the ground after that was it had it needed to be then you know it was like there was a kind of now or never factor and I do think creating an imperative for everybody else to see really easily uh, yeah we understand why this needs to be now which is there's a thousand different ways to kind of create an imperative like that but like everyone's you know giving people a reason to say yes that was accidentally in place for that um, it, it just happened to be the little film just wanted to exist and we were along for the ride is how it kind of felt on that one I think I, lo- I love the fact that you've gone out there to, to shoot the short as well and it's kind of I mean a lot of people they think okay well, I'm going to shoot the simplest easiest one room thing I can possibly do for the least money but I always think like do something ambitious do something out of your comfort zone travel you know do an exciting um, short that's in a different culture and you throw yourself into it and sort of separate yourself from everyone else and I think for and you it's really worked the truth is there was no strategy what it was like I literally was like I need a story I know I have the people that will make something with me I need the story and then this story came to my mind of it had stayed with me for 10 years I'd heard it on the radio visiting my grandma that story I'm going to tell that story so there was no strategy at all what about the actual directing of it then because like you said you'd done the shorts and you'd found your way through them suddenly now you're directing a feature film Talk us through that process for you to suddenly go, okay, I've got to really think about my shots working with a, probably a bigger cinematographer, perhaps, and the crew. What was that for you like and what did you learn massively? It was the learning curve was like that. Yes. Yeah. I actually, I swear there was so much stuff that I didn't know that I didn't know at that point. And there, and there is the kind of freedom to that. Like the, I've, I've noticed that in a lot of people's stories, it's definitely true in mine, is after the first one is when you have the hardest time. Yeah. You know, because then you do sort of know, but you don't really have a strong sense of... It's taken me the 10 years. In, I just was in LA recently and I noticed how nice it is now to... I do have a good idea of what most people are looking for, like, on the other side of the table. What is that? <laughs> As opposed to, like, I see, you know, that first round of meetings, you're kind of going in going, I know what I need. I have yes. no idea what you need, yes. like, at all. And there's something really valuable about, right, I understand what you're, like, my last job, uh, I had to do seven interviews with different studios and producers and the rest of it to get it. But it was every single interview was like, I understand what you people are looking for and I know what 
will reassure you. Mm. And I just didn't know that prior. And some of that is learning it the hard way, and some of it is, you know, making friends with people who are doing it. <laughs> you know, some of the biggest challenges with that first feature. With the first one, the biggest one, it, it, I didn't know what tech recce was. Like I'd never been on a feature. If I had my time again, I would learn to be a boom op and get paid because sound is always the department that gets paid first. And you're right in the mix. (laughs) You know, you're right by the actors. You're right with the director. You hear everything. And and I would get paid to learn. That's what what I would do if I was starting again. Um, And and you leave. There's no pack-up time. Um, (laughs) Yeah, they are out of there. Yeah, no. Um, uh, So it was, you know, on on the feature, there was a... I had a huge amount of, like, I know how to tell a story, that kind of husband or whatever. I had that. I knew I could work with cast. That wasn't the worry. I'd, like, worked in casting, and I had spent... You know, I, I knew I was comfortable with actors. Um, I didn't know... I didn't understand what does a DP need. I had Sean Bobbitt shooting, um, who was... Uh, I mean, he's so talented, and he was so, like, what am I doing, like, a lot of the time. <laughs> we... we uh, thankfully, Kate Reed, who's a super talented cinematographer, she was also. We had two. We kind of had two DPs shooting constantly because there were so many kids. Um, so between us, we managed to muscle through. But poor old Sean. I mean, like I didn't have a clue. Like had no language, had no craft, had no. You know, I spent a lot of the time after that realizing, oh, uh, credibility-wise in the industry, it isn't just a good story filled with good actors there's there's a language to cinematography that I didn't understand at all and I do now which is great you know but the um yeah the the, what was the tech recruit I know all these great big South Africans got out of a bus and I was like everyone's standing around and sort of looking at me shit that means it's best to say something (laughs) just just nod nod and point (laughs) (laughs) here we are um, <laughs> but what? But that must have been fascinating. Now looking back, because you, everyone says you're never as free as your first film, and maybe everyone agrees here on the panel. I definitely felt that, even though it's frightening. At the same time, you, you, the second one and your third, suddenly now you've got someone more to answer to, or you've got to try and do better, or there's more money. Did you feel that way in terms of your first one to go? Look, maybe I don't know all the terminology, but I'm having a great time. Or I'm, I'm finding my way through this in the best possible way. Or were you I, shitting the, the yourself? Thing that I struggled with the most was the transition from the indie thing where you do everything into um, uh, being able to rely on other people, you know, who are way more experienced than me to like, I genuinely don't need to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Like, I can really lean on you. I was super grateful. I had a brilliant relationship with Pathé and they were incredibly supportive through the whole thing. Um, but the in terms of, you know, the crew being able to bring their thing, Sean being able to bring his thing, like the, you know, I felt like I was, I didn't have a way to negotiate creatively at that time, which meant that well, you either intuit somehow what I want yeah. or I'm trying to fold around you. Whereas now there's much more of like, I understand much better how to illustrate or, get, or set a vision for what I'm looking at and invite you know, everybody's to bring their creativity because that's what I mean. Everybody—that's what everybody wants, isn't it? It isn't about—it isn't about um, being a meat puppet either as a as a cast member or a crew member. It's about I want to bring my creativity, and my experience to help you realize the thing that you see. So, 
that was a big transition. I and that's one of the benefits of doing like so many different roles when you're starting out is you learn different departments and you learn how not to fuck things up for, <laughs> for them. And it, it really is valuable when you can talk to them in their language. And you know, obviously, you've learned that in terms of talking to execs as well, uh, which is amazing. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Uh, Francis, what was your sort of uh, way into mm, all this? So I'm trying to think, I'll try and keep it specific. In terms of first film and generally, I was going to study com- something completely different. Um, I did a BBC training course with Phil Hawkins, the two, two, two brothers in arms, um, way back in 2002, 2003, and then kind of switched to study um, directing at Bournemouth uh, Film School, uh, and then went back to the BBC and kind of scrounged little bits of kind of camera trainee-ish type stuff. And the main aim was, used to watch a lot of television, watch a lot of films like, okay, how does the director talk to the DP? How does, you know, what you're talking with the boom up? Like, like, I get all the stuff with cool, da, 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 but like, practically speaking, they're shooting from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. How do they practically actually get that stuff in time? Very interested in that. So I thought, I'll do something like a boom up type, you know, to get on set, do my job really quickly, and then sit there. Yeah, we do this and that and that. And we get two sizes, and widen the tight, and shoot on the lines. Okay, all this stuff, the lingo. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Um, so I was, yeah, yeah. So I did about two or three shows. This is about two thousand four, five, six, from that time, and then did a few music videos, kind of putting into practice what I was learning on these BBC TV sets and film sets. Um, went to a small little. So Kodak used to do these um, European summer schools. This is back in two thousand seven. Um, they'd get people from Spain, Estonia, dum 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 dum, um, and then you get you get put in uh, ten groups of ten. Uh, you make a film over two days. We had like the edit assistant from Jaws came over. It was pretty sick. Um, and then you make a film, and then the winner gets ten thousand feet of sixteen mil stock. Um, not ten thousand pounds. Not ten thousand pounds. Yeah, which was like you know. <laughs> but um, and so yeah, I did did that, and our film ended up winning the whole thing. So I thought, okay. Maybe maybe there is something. Maybe I don't know. I've, I've not lost it completely. Came back to the UK. Carried on doing a few bits and bobs. Um, made a um, a feature length drama. I don't call it a feature film because it wasn't distributed, but it was a feature length sort of a, a drama. Um, a small college in Manchester. Um, was, how, how did you how did you do that? I mean, did you raise the money yourself? Did you get friends together? Like, what was the process? Yeah, without boring too much. Basically, some lecturers wanted to convert a play that they were study they were kind of teaching to their, their pupils into a script they had a little bit of money and seven days to shoot and so they were looking for someone effectively to get a camera and five people and I kind of I kind of bumped it up to this kind of film so I, I can get camera crew and I can get this and, and so I 
ferried people from London up and all, all this kind of stuff and eventually made that. Um, it was a 90-minute thing, but I didn't care. It was just playing around with something that's 90 minutes rather than 15. Mm. That was the kind of idea, like, you know, okay, you know, how do you make it work? So that was interesting, um, but, you know, not a feature film, a feature-length drama, I call it. Um, so then after that... Um, after bragging rights, you can call it a feature film. Okay, okay, feature film. Because um, I, I think it's an important thing, and, and I think a lot of filmmakers, just as a very quick sidebar, I think yes. a lot of filmmakers are like spend years and years trying to get like millions of pounds for their first feature. Mm-hmm. Once you've made a feature, it doesn't matter how bad it is, you've proven that you can go from A to B, and you can stick with it, and you can get it done. And I think it really helps in terms of getting next things made. I totally agree, because it's, it's getting, as a producer, when I'm looking at people's work if they say oh I've made quite a little shorts great I'll look at those but then you don't know necessarily whether they can hack it sometimes for you know four weeks or you know 12 days or whatever it is in the trenches and it is a different thing so if someone has made a feature it does change your mindset and you suddenly go okay it doesn't matter how bad it is it doesn't matter I know that they've gone through to the end they've done the post they've done the sound mix and they've put it somewhere and it actually does make a difference so it's, back to your feature it, it helps feature if it's great drama. of course yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lady Macbeth um, uh, William Oldroyd you know shot for whatever very little money uh, Disappearance of Alice Creed it's nothing, but, you know, he did it uh, shifty, you know. So, yes, it's true. Being able to tell and hold the story with a camera and a couple of people is, is important. So, yes, stand corrected. Feature film. Um, <laughs> so I did that, 2007-8, and then blah, 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 short film, blah, 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 and then um, met, incidentally, the same producers who yes. ended up doing Afghan United. Yes, yeah. um, and they had uh, another film, um, which was, ended up being Escape from Pretoria. Um, I read the book for that in 2012, they got the rights back. They spent a long time doing rewrites. I ended up taking the, the, the script um, and rewriting it. it. Interesting fact, that was supposed to be shot for like 1.5 million. Um, hire a converted hospital or abattoir or something and just shoot it. Um, and then it kind of became a bigger and bigger thing. Um, but, but how, how did you get the producer? Because I mean, it's hard to find a producer that will say, "Okay, right, you know, I'm going to trust you with what could be a fairly decent budget feature film and get you involved in the rewrites." And how did you actually convince said producer? Did you have rejections along the way? Like, how did that? Uh, no, so they had the, they had the rights to the book. Um, I I had kind of doubled. There was a film festival which they were part of, and I just um, at the end, basically, the the there's ten people and the top three for the festival, have dinner with the kind of the top schmooze and the other seven get to go home. And I just hang around, I hung around the toilets and was just like... It's a good place to hang out. Yeah, look, hi, mate. Um, so that's where you find producers? <laughs> producers, yeah, yeah, I just hung around. Yeah, just, I, just, I thought, I'll, I'll just I'll get his card or something. He said, oh, come and join us. You know, I didn't get through to the final three, but he said, come and join us. So I had dinner and then after that, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that was more the thing. And then he, they had incidentally lost the rights to the, this book um, to somebody else, but he said, read it anyway. So then, yeah, yeah, do this, do that, cut to this, cut page 70 to page 90 out, do this, do this, do this, this is how you make it. Um, and so he was like, okay, we'll have a look at getting the rights back. So that's kind of how I wheedled my way in. Brilliant. Um, so that, but then it was only supposed to be a one, 1.5 million, so who cares, right? Um, later. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure the room's with you this morning. No, no. It, it, but I, what I mean is, you know, at, at that kind of level, um, you know, the, the risk. Oh yes, one million is, is a lot, but the risk is it's not a twenty million dollar yes. or fifty million. It's, it's, you think it, it's, with you as a as a newer filmmaker? Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. So with me as a newer filmmaker, it is a risk, but I mean, come on, you know. Um, and so, and, and, you know, and the thing is, I mean, yeah, you got. I think if I think without being trite, I think you kind of need to 
act and think and, and it might talk that way. You know, you come on, you know, you've got to sort of be bullish. Being, yeah. yeah, being being aware that you are ready for it. Yes. Something those two producers do is Mark and Jackie Footprint, Footprint Films. Yeah. It, they're really brilliant at finding people who they believe have promise mm. and massively backing them. And I don't think I realised how much that had added at the time that I was working with them. And I think in retrospect, and it's sort of interesting hearing your thing as well, like that that's something that they really break. Like a lot of the time we're desperate to work with like, oh, this, this massively famous or experienced person, and that's my vouch. And sometimes that means that you're just the least experienced person in the room. There's something to be said for people that will... will be real champions, right? Anyway, yeah. sorry, your story. No, no, no. Uh, having someone that backs you is so important, yeah. for sure. And as a side point to what you're saying, um, if you're a producer and you've got a film and you know it's going to be an uphill battle, right, um, most people would say, yes, I'd rather have you know, some big hotshot director. Really? If you know the budget's not going to be more than X, you know, one, two, three, four, you want this guy coming, I want this, I want that, I want this. It's difficult, right? And they've got a lot of projects already. Actually, a tenacious, capable, um, dedicated, younger filmmaker is probably of greater advantage to you because you know it's going to be a one- to three-year process and that guy or woman will stick with you. And so, don't, yes, very good New, point. Newer, if not younger. Doesn't have yeah, to yeah, 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 sorry. Younger meaning in the industry, but yes, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. yeah age is relevant. Yeah. The same goes for crewing up as well. Like, don't, don't try and get people that are, like, on 400 a day, like, you know, focus pulling on commercials. Like, because they're just not going to be the one that stays behind when your, you know, indie film goes to shit. Yeah. And, you know, you need to find people that are going to work with it and yeah. that are right for the, the budget level and they're yeah. going to work hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. So, yeah, so you were saying you're in that position where the, the, the book, you've reworked it, you've looked at it, and they, the rights have come back. So then from that point, how did it develop into a, a bigger picture? And how did Daniel Radcliffe come on board and did that cement the extra budget? Um, yeah, so long story, I rewrote the script in 2015. Um, and then um, Mark and Jackie, the producers, uh, went to a, a slightly more experienced um, kind of ex-studio ex turned independent producer for a bit of help to get to that next kind of thing or to kind of mix in that world. Uh, then they said, okay, the budget needs to come up because the script, I, I could have put all these explosions and stuff and I was like, yeah, stuff you suckers. You know, it's from the book. And so it's like, it's not a 1.5 million film anymore. We now have this uh, slightly more accessing producer in that kind of studio world. Let's kind of go big or go home. Then they started exploring some of the, kind of, uh, the, 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 the studios and mini-majors. Um, then the producer had a connection, as I said before, with Dan Radcliffe's agent. So he said, okay, let's do it. Um, went to her. She read it in like three days. Love it. Sent it to Dan. Love it. This was 2016. Uh, we, you know, Dan said he wants to meet. We met like for three hours. We chatted about geopolitical affairs, about... Uh, socialism. I hope about, you knew some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, he's very, you know, he's, he's, you're like, okay, A game, right, here we go, boom, you know, um, and he's kind of throwing at you, so you have to sort of um, compete with him. He's very clever, he's very, very, very well read. So we met, and he just said, yeah, no, cool. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'll call my agent and say I'm in. Uh, this is August 2016, and I was like, <laughs> yes. Once you, get, <laughs> once you get him attached, that's it, you know, the finance sort of follows or not? Yeah, so the, it, it was slightly rocky, so again, without naming names, we had a sales agent at that time who we later found out was kind of crumbling. And so they went to Cannes 2017. They raised far too little. Uh, and as a side point, um, we'd sent the script 
into United Agent or something, and Sam Neill's agent had read it for another actor and said, oh, have you cast the, 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 this character? No. Uh, maybe it could work for Sam Neill? Yes. Um, okay, of course. So we had the two of them, and, but it didn't really work because they weren't really selling. Um, the sales agent wasn't selling uh, to, the, to, the, to the optimum, you know, with those two lead actors. And so we had to switch um, to a different sales agent. Then things really started. Uh, it was uh, uh, AFM, American Film Market 2017. They were able to raise about $4 million pre-sales. Um, and then things started cooking. And then we went to Cannes 2018. Um, our issue was um, we needed some money from South Africa. And again, without naming too many names, it was apparent that we would not get the money until after the window of the cast availability, um, which was January yeah. to March 2019. So we had to switch the whole production to Australia. Again, without going into too much detail. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, 2 Australians always uh, coming through. Uh, and that was able to you know, help plug everything, and then we were able to shoot. So it was, I could say a lot more, but yeah, it was, it was very duck and divey. I learned tons about that part of the process, um, and yeah. Things do fall apart, and, and cast come and go, and it, it does definitely happen that way. It's not, like a, it's not like a linear line where your project is suddenly greenlit, for sure. What did you learn on that then? Obviously, it's a big budget movie. You're stepping up massively. You're working with some you know, huge names. How did you approach that? How did you deal with it? Was it the same? Was it different? Was it more emotional? <laughs> Talk us through it. Um, it's different to a short film. But it's also the same. Different in the sense that there's more of it. And that punk over there who's putting two million in is telling me something, something, something. Who are you? Oh, okay. And you've got to accommodate all this stuff. That's what's different as opposed to an indie where you just go, oh, do this, do that, let's shoot here. You're more nimble. Um, uh, uh, Greta Gerwig talks about when she shot um, Lady Bird, how some, the, the, the location manager hadn't booked something for a, um, a shopping mall. And so they sat there in a shopping mall car park at 7 a.m. with their iPads out and their iPhones out looking for a supermarket and phoning around, no. you know what I mean? And then going, okay, and getting there at 10 o'clock with like 75 crew and shooting a seat, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, the budget was 3 million, you do that kind of stuff. At a slightly bigger budget, you don't do that. Someone's planned it and da, da, da. Yeah, so, you know, safety, reps, yeah. toilets. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of... Escape from Tora was more in that second category. You weren't able to just go, yeah, I'll just do this. It was like, no, you won't. Mm. It's all constrained and that's been planned. So that was interesting. I had spent the many, many years <laughs> preparing for this film, uh, shotlisting the whole thing, and I, I had storyboarded about 40% of it. And so I found that when I was location wrecking, what I was, it was very clear I needed you know, a shot from the bar, it needs to start, it needs to go across here, down, uh, follow this guy's legs, come across the whole thing, someone needs to cross in the foreground, it needs to end up on the... So I was, I was forcing every location to fit what I needed. Mm -hmm. So I found as if I was, I was very clear, no, 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 yes, that one, because I can get the shot. So that was very helpful, having some loose itinerary. Now, obviously, yes, if an actor comes along and says, I want to do it all by the flipping window, then you have to cut all the... You know, but, but that's what... So, so that's what I would say, having that at least for the main sequences, having a very clear idea of some of the key scenes means you can immediately begin to um, shortlist, um, say what you need, um, say what doesn't work to, to, you know, to stop wasting people's time. That was quite useful. Um, and I just, I just went down the rabbit hole, my own rabbit hole of what I needed to get what was necessary. Yeah. Was, it, was it difficult working with a major star? Did you 
was that was that a hindrance to you, or did you sort of have to get past that? The, big, the biggest issue with with not biggest, but one of the issues is uh, if you're working with you know um, non A listers, you can go, oh yeah, should we just like do rehearsal and do this and do that? And, do, and it's like, no, they're in Paris shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, they can be with you a week beforehand. But, sorry, what? What? Yeah. Uh, and I want to get all three of them together. It's like, no, he's in Guatemala shooting. You know. So that's the biggest thing that like, you, you you don't always have weeks and weeks and weeks of of prep time. And so um, nowadays, you probably do everything on Zoom, uh, maybe. And, and I'd, I'd be an advocate of that. But back then, it was, so I managed to get Dan and everybody there two weeks before, do some line rehearsals, which was helpful. Uh, and because I was storyboarded, they said, oh, you know, well, how's it going to look? So I got chairs and tables and literally went, right, the door's here. You're going to come in from there. Okay, three, two, one, action. And we just rehearsed it. And they loved being able to, to do that as the sets were being built. So, yeah. Uh, and Cos, can we talk a little bit about your most recent film? Because you've just been to Iceland, which is pretty fucking exciting. Um, it's, it looks amazing. Like, how did it? How did it come to you? How did you get it? Well, it was yeah. kind of funny what you're saying about Greta Gerwig changing locations in a supermarket. We had a month to change a country. So uh, the writer Lucinda, who's here today, actually wrote it set in Hong Kong. And a month before we were about to go out to Hong Kong, uh, we got a call from the Hong Kong uh, Film Council saying they'd revoked our permits and our visas because of COVID. So we were like, shit, we've raised this money. I don't want to lose it. Like the producers were talking about putting it back for a year. And I was like, there's, there's no way, because I know as soon as you do that, the investors will fuck off and go somewhere else. So we literally just looked at a list. I think it was 15 countries on this list that had no COVID laws at all. And Iceland was one of them. I was like, oh, I went there when I was younger. That's fucking cool. It's good. <laughs> Hot springs, mountains, glaciers, you know. So the, the script, we had four days. To, well, Lucinda, I, I didn't do anything. But we had four days to change it from like a one-car wide, fast-paced cityscape to like a Terrence Malick, isolated, like beautiful, like... It was a pretty stressful four days, but the investors loved that idea and, uh, you know, kind of made the movie, you know, for, for what it was. Did you, did so. you sort of take into account tax credits or was it like already financed so it so, didn't really matter? Yeah, I mean, we looked at the tax credits because obviously when you have private equity and investors, you want to get the most for their, for their money. So we looked at Iceland and it is really good. But like we said, for, in order for us to get that, we had to have a certain amount of the language in Icelandic, which we have done, which is now a nightmare in editing because I'm currently editing it and I'm like, no fucking clue what to <laughs> like, this is could be saying anything and I'm just like we said to the cast like you could totally troll us now in this Icelandic and just like this is the worst film I've ever been on and we're like yeah you looked great really good uh, which is a bit of a nightmare um, but it'll be fine but yeah in terms of that obviously the cast uh, the crew as well we needed a certain percentage but they were all on uh, True Detective out there with Christopher Eccleston and Jodie Foster at the moment so how, how did you get attached to the project in the first place is it a producer you've worked with like did you so I've were you on board when the finance was there or so no we actually it was it's my partner Lucinda who, who wrote the script originally in Hong Kong and we were like okay let's try and raise this like we've got quite a few projects out there that are kind of between the one and five million range that it just takes so long I hate sitting around doing stuff especially at side of COVID it's why I'll pretty much say yes to anything if a producer out there needs a director for hire because I love being on set I love working with actors and I love making movies so uh, we always create our own opportunities. I think you have to in, in the independent world, rather than waiting for these other bigger projects, it's like, okay, well, let's go do something. So Lucinda wrote the script, and then I sent it to a producer I've worked with uh, called Glenn Kirby, and he was like, okay, great, let's try and raise the money. You know, like a lot of producers, he'll be like, I love it. Have you got cash? And we're like, no, can you help us? Like, no. So, right, so we basically went to a lot of investors who've invested in my previous movies and things like that. And, you know, I mean, it was a £100,000 movie, so stupidly Oh, right. film, okay. um, to say we had yeah, 12 days in Iceland it was, it was nuts um, and we kind of yeah, got the equity that way 
didn't really, we approached a lot of co-producing companies out in Iceland, but they kind of literally laughed at us, like physically on a Zoom call, <laughs> laughed, going, you want to make a movie in winter in Iceland on 100 grand? Oh. Like, yep, good luck. Um, so I, that's another thing is like when people say that to me, it's like, yeah, fuck you, I'm going to do it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, that's a big driving force behind me. So it's when all this stuff was happening, it's like, we have to go make this movie. And um, we got some, yeah, actors that we've known from previous projects. And Do you have problems with like finding locations, doing recce's? So we, I mean, you know, you can, you know, it is amazing nowadays. You know, we have, you know, YouTube videos of like, you know, vloggers in Iceland and going, oh, that looks pretty. Oh, so does that. Okay, well, so we've got a scene in the film where it's like they wake up in Reykjavik and they go to this black beach. It's like, it's just a nine hour drive for a day out. There's an eight, 18 hour round trip. No one will know that. And so it's like looking at these locations and going, okay, well, let's all stick to the south coast of Iceland and base ourselves there between Reykjavik and Selfoss and this other place and basically figured out for each part of the script where we could go and obviously we flew out literally five days before we started filming and kind of just went on a quick recce with the DOP oh, wow. to try and find places and Iceland was great like that I, you know, so they, they were helpful like the, the people right? and, yeah the you people know, were, you weren't were getting awesome. issues with no, getting locations no not at all we literally go to pubs to hot springs and stuff they're like yeah yeah come here it's not, not a problem at all they were, they were really really easy when it came to locations that's great. Well, it's interesting what Cos said there about when you go to a producer and you sort of go with your hand out. A lot of the producers have got their own stuff going on. So, of course, they're not just going to go, yeah, of course, I'll take on one of your projects, another one of yours. But if you come with something, you come with an actor or you come with some money or you come with your, your full physical deck or if you know about IM's information memorandums, which is how you raise the money when you go to an investor, it has to be all done properly through a lawyer. And I had to learn all this. And on Three Day Millionaire, we raised all the money ourselves, all through equity, all through private financing, mainly in Grimsby. Because it was set there, it was a perfect place to try and find the money. But it, it's so important. Regional that, finance, regional well finance is a great idea. It's like so important really that idea. you learn that. If you want to be a producer, even if you don't, you're a director, but you're going in with something. You're trying to find a producer to work with you. To know this stuff is valuable. It's something Cos was saying. I, I would definitely yeah. piggyback on that. I think, I don't know, I can't, I'm not a veteran, but I reckon 20 years ago you could just be a director, a writer. Nowadays, I go to can and I talk to directors and they're like, yep, so if you get 20% from this, us as filmmakers, we have to know the, the back end of it. We have to know about distribution. So try, I mean, I'm sure you all look very clever. So, but if you, you know, keep, don't, don't ever think, oh, that person or that department is not really relevant. No, get the card, get the information, meet yeah. them anyway, because there are so many facets. And if you do meet a producer and you're a director and the producer's possibly struggling or something, you can go, hey, Last year at Cannes, I met this guy and this or this woman who did this and this. So you're, you're helping because you're, you're not just a director, you're a filmmaker. And so you're all putting, so that's a very good idea. I, I don't think you should ever meet anybody in any strata of the film industry and say, oh, oh, take the number, take the card and keep them. And in 6, 12, 18 months, they may become useful. That's, that's it. Idea. I mean, network as well. Like, you, you know, if you're making a film, your, your budget is your crew. It's like who will work for your budget and who will trust you and who will want to go out into Iceland or, you know, wherever, you know, godforsaken freezing cold place you, you want to shoot your movie. So never just look for the person with the money. Like, always look for, you know, your, your camera op might know a producer very well and might hook you up as a director so you never really and so much of this stuff is powered by relationship isn't it it's like, it all powered know, by relationships it's such a confidence game and yeah. like I didn't talk about the Star Wars stuff, but I ended up doing a behind the scenes thing on the Star Wars thing and the thing that I learned the most from that is how much things are powered by I know you and I trust mm. you mm. 
or I see how you work and I trust you, or I see what you bring to the table and I trust you. So what you're saying about like always doing what you can to add value to somebody else, whether or not you're going to see it back, is just is a is a good way to be in terms of like personal health, but but be like you never know being seen. Being known as somebody that's going to add value, that's going to that's going to improve rather than uh, decrease the well. level of happiness in a, in a place, <laughs> yeah, you know, like it, it's yeah. a big thing. You know? So, so when you're working on like television, for instance, so you, you worked on Halo and and, and Willow. Let's, let's talk about Halo. Like, how do you transition from the mindset of a director of a feature film into a big show like that? Like, how did that? How did you even get the job? Like, how did you get stuck into that? And a lot of what people are looking for in TV is to know that you're not going to be somebody that's going to try and wrap the whole thing around your ego. Like, genuinely, that's that's what TV interviews are largely to... Like, do you have a vision? Yes, we're excited for it. Are you going to be a nightmare? <laughs> genuinely, yeah. as important. And it's, and, it, and it's, you know, that whole... It, it's, it's usually... I mean, like, I ended up doing TV because I had been seven years in development and I hadn't directed anything and I was desperate to direct um, and was very, very poor and needed to make some money. And so Halo kind of came at the end of a run of work uh, where stuff had been building up to that. And, you know, I was very proud to do it and kicked off the new season and it's a big show. We also shot in Iceland, which, you know, comes with its own fun, doesn't it? It's amazing, but it's gnarly. Yeah, the process of doing TV stuff... That has been amazing apart from getting to, you know, you get to work with tools, you get to try this out, you get to how much can I receive somebody else's vision and deliver it while still bringing something of my own special source. Like all of that stuff is really great, but it's not yours. You know, it's not yours. And the, and you're coming in to play on somebody, else, somebody else's show, somebody else's party. Uh, you bring what you can within that. An American UK system works slightly differently. Um, uh, in terms of how much you own it, you own it a bit more in the in the UK than you do in the in US stuff. What would you say you brought in terms of when you came on and started directing for that show? Like, what was it that you thought? Okay, this is some interesting ideas that I feel like I can really add to the production. Especially being the lead director rather than the the second on Halo, particularly. Yeah. Um, so the, so uh, I know that I bring a good relationship with cast and it, you know in TV you coming in to think I mean that's the thing it's it, it, on film a huge amount of energy goes into setting up the job right mm-hmm. you know financing it crewing it casting it making all the things it's like setting up a new business every single time on TV as a director it's it's already done. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you come into an already working. Oh ship. my word! Yeah. It's like it's, it's casted. It's crude. I mean, it's yeah. not always cast, but it's crude. It's you know, it's going to be then. It's going to be there. Um, but then, how, I suppose, Tom, so how do you deal with then? You, you, the DPs have already been on it. They've already looked at the actors. Have already been on it. So. Well, it depends. DPs, DPs. Sometimes you bring with um, you, and sometimes it's occasional that they're already on. But uh, DP in first, you normally an editor, you normally bring with you normally. But you know, with Halo, Halo season two, they were they, you know the, the season one has been very successful. They were wanting to do a slightly different thing. It was a new showrunner, and um, uh, a lot of the creative team was new, and the and it, it, it was just good chemistry. Like the the showrunner was excited about what I would bring to the uh, vision for it. I had. You know, because I've done Willow and Half Bad and various things, I had the, I was able to, 
I'd done it, I'd done it before was the thing, you know. And so there was a, you know, going through the, there's a lot of different studio calls and a lot of different um, producer calls and stuff. But to, like, I, I had, it, I wasn't, it wasn't a stretch. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and what was it that you kind of, um, when you first went into TV, like, how did you, because I mean, a lot of feature directors struggle to actually get into yeah, you know, no, television like, as a, as a sort of jump across. Yeah, I had made a feature and really struggled to get a first break in TV. And it, it's for that reason, like, you know... I mean, the, how, how did you do it? Did you even... Did you do shadowing? Did you just... So I got... And... I was lucky in the sense of Channel 4 were running a... They were running a paid shadowing scheme and I got one of that. So I got put on Humans. Um, uh, I, did, I worked a full block and got paid to do that whilst not actually directing it, but picked up, like... I would say uh, do what you can to get second unit if you're trying to break into TV. Um, I got four episodes of second unit across two blocks of humans. Uh, then still, you know, struggled. Uh, then got um, strike back uh, because I had really, I do really love shooting action. So I got strike back and that was a kind of, you direct two, we'll credit you for one. A bit of a, a wheelie dealy thing. And then still wasn't getting shows for the next couple of years after that. And then did a totally, you know, was offered... Because I've been shooting some action, my name was put on a list of second unit directors. Um, for the, They wanted a female second unit on uh, The Rise of Skywalker, so my name got put on that list uh, by a producer who I'd met at a film festival mm. 10 years prior, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. in the way that these things go. Yeah. And I didn't get hired to do the um, second unit. I went in for the meeting on the second unit, and they were like, oh, sorry, we've actually met the person we're going to... JJ's met Vic, who was amazing uh, in LA, so that's not on the table anymore, but you seem cool, we wanted to meet you anyway. And then I got a call three months later saying, look, we're looking for a filmmaker to do the behind the scenes, we know this isn't what you do. Uh, JJ wants a filmmaker, not an advertising person, we thought of you. And I so nearly said no, like so nearly said no, because I wasn't doing that. I was getting down to the last two on TV stuff. That's, that was my plan. And it was the best thing I could have possibly done was to go through the door that opened rather than keep banging my head on the... That's it. Working sideways, it can often right. be such a great move. Right. Like, you know, it's always about putting your ego aside. If, if you meet some amazing people, you never know where it's going to lead. So don't always just think, I'm this, I'm going to have to just hold out, you know, forever. Absolutely. It's like Cos says just then before, sometimes you can say yes and it's cool. Okay, I think we've got to wrap it up, I'm afraid. Um, thank you so much to our panellists. Yeah, uh, you'll be incredible. For Cos, for Francis, for Dom. Debs, thank you so much for coming up. Thank you for the London Independent Film Festival. Thank you very much, Natasha. Cheers, guys. Yeah. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, buddy. Thank you.